It's TechBiter Worldwide. I'm Bill Blinn with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the sports, most of the jingles, the weather, and the commercials. Podcast number 376 for January 19th, 2014. This week, some new features, including a bit of privacy for the latest version of Google Chrome. The New York Times hits a home run with its website update. The Nexus tablet listens when I talk. If you sometimes have trouble sending an email, maybe you need another server. And in short circuits, I rescind a program recommendation that I made a few weeks ago. Oops. And is net neutrality dead or just wounded? Mozilla's Firefox is still my primary browser, but there's a lot to like about version 31 of Chrome. Because it's built by Google, it puts many Google features right at your fingertips, or right at your mouse cursor. Currently, it's not quite enough to drag me away from Firefox, but maybe someday. I would rate Firefox and Chrome nearly as equals, followed by Internet Explorer and Opera. Fortunately, Apple's Safari browser is no longer available for Windows machines, so it's no longer at the bottom of the heap. When you start Chrome with no sites open, you'll have a large Google search entry box, along with direct links to Google+, Gmail, Images, and with two clicks to most other Google services. And the image you see on the TechBiter Worldwide website is not the default background. Chrome can be skinned, and this happens to be the one I selected, for better or worse. If you have a microphone, you can tell Google what you're looking for by simply saying it. This works really well on tablets such as the Nexus. Privacy note, though, Google is listening. If you say it, Google will store it. Chrome will try to convince you that if you're one of the 37 people in the world who currently don't have an account with Google, that you should create one. Should you? Well, probably you should, but you'll have to decide that for yourself based on whether you prefer convenience or you're concerned about the intrusiveness. Once you've installed Chrome, it will always be up to date because the updates are delivered more or less silently. Unlike Firefox, though, extensions aren't automatically updated. This offers better security than Firefox does, but it also means you need to do more of the work. Adobe Flash is included with Chrome, so you don't need to install a separate plugin. That's also true for Adobe PDF support. Since Adobe fixes security problems with the Flash player about every 12 minutes, having those updates taken care of automatically is a plus. And because Chrome runs Flash in a sandbox, kind of a protected area of memory, security is improved too. If a website offers you a PDF document, Chrome's built-in PDF reader takes over. Although you can copy and paste text from PDFs, the same isn't true for images. In addition to being able to synchronize bookmarks across multiple devices, Chrome now allows users to sync tabs, passwords, preferences, themes, apps, autofill entries, extensions, and more. This can be pretty handy if you want Chrome to be the same on all computers. Or it can present a problem if you want to have different settings on various machines. I tried this, but ended up turning it off. Chrome has the distinction of being the last big browser to support the Do Not Track privacy option. And the developers have turned the option off by default. 
And beyond that, they've hidden it so well that it's likely most people will never find it. This is Google, after all, a company with a vested interest in being able to track users. If you want to turn it on, you'll need to open advanced settings, disregard the somewhat disingenuous pop-up that says your privacy won't actually be protected. Because Google's motto is don't be evil, it is worth noting that Internet Explorer 10, the one from the evil empire, enables do not track protection by default. Actually, if you want the strongest do not track protection, you should be using Internet Explorer 10. And you don't know how strange it is to say that. The new version of Chrome allows you to launch apps inside or outside. Beware, though, that if you decide to use the feature, Chrome will insist that you log in, and it will add a new icon to your taskbar. It also seems to want to make itself the default browser. After a few minutes of being asked to sign in every few seconds, and signing in every few seconds, I finally gave up on the apps function in Chrome. It probably works, just not for me. If you set Chrome as your default browser, maybe you'll find a useful app to load. From my perspective, there really wasn't much there. Google Maps? I can use that from Chrome. Or Firefox. Or Internet Explorer. So why do I need an app? And I found one called Writer. Uh, makes your computer look like it's something out of 1985. Essentially, it looks like a character-based typing application. Think WordPerfect or the original DOS versions of Microsoft Word, black screen, green type. It's really a Windows GUI application, but it just looks retro. If you use an application like this, you'll quickly see that no formatting is possible, none at all, no bold, no italic, no underline, no indents, no left, right, or center justification. If you misspell a word, though, you do get a red squiggle. Now, the advantage of this is that you focus all of your attention on the words, on the writing. Formatting comes later. In other words, it's like my standard text editor, but wait, I already have one of those. This application displays the word news in the upper right corner. Annoyingly, occasionally, it bounces up and down. And if I click the link to follow it and see what's there, it isn't news. The developer's just trying to sell me a $60 per year upgrade. In two words, no thanks. The bottom line for Google Chrome version 31, all browsers are free, so why should you pick just one? As a browser, it's fine. Watch out, though, for the extra features you might find in Chrome. If you're somebody who doesn't trust Google with information about your life, then you probably should avoid this browser. Additional details are on the Google website, and there's a link on the TechBiter Worldwide website. By the way, I'd give Google Chrome 31 five cats. It is a good browser. Even the people who work at the New York Times don't much care for the newspaper of record label that's been applied to the paper. It's not like an event if it's not reported there ceases to exist. But the New York Times continues to be, with the occasional misstep, a very dependable source of balanced information. For many years, I received the print version of the paper at home. But the national print version, if it still exists, closes in the late afternoon. The web-based version is more timely, and I read it daily. A new version of the website appeared recently, then disappeared. It's back now, and I really like it. Here's how it happened. 
When I logged on recently, a pop-up message offered a preview of the new site. I clicked and immediately decided that this was a significant improvement over the original site, even though the original site was probably the best example of newspaper journalism on the web. But when I tried to find it the next day, it was gone. After a few more days, I contacted the newspaper's customer service department and asked. It seems that what I saw was indeed just a preview, and that the update would be rolled out the following week, as a matter of fact, on my older daughter's birthday. Not that they knew it was her birthday. So on the appointed day, I received a message that told me the new version was available. Instead of taking the Apple approach and simply claiming that everything is discoverable, the New York Times management went to considerable lengths to explain how the new site works. They did this even though it is quite discoverable. A welcome page showed that the design would work well with various screen sizes and orientations, portrait or landscape. I'm thinking tablets here. And it offered a video to show me more. I'd already seen the site, so I figured the video wouldn't tell me anything new, but I thought I'd watch it anyway. But the video never started to play. The other graphics clearly illustrated that the update is designed not only with computer users in mind, but it's also for the large and growing group of people who use tablets of various sizes and phones to read the newspaper. Oh, and the video? Never did start. After navigating to the science section, I thought I'd read a review of one of my favorite new books, Cat Sense, by John Bradshaw. At the top of the screen, the website offers other articles that might be of interest to me, and I'm offered various ways of sharing the story in the left margin. In Scandinavian countries, sans-serif type is the norm, but in much of the rest of the world, typefaces with serifs are considered easier to read. Serifs are the little feet on the letters at the bottom. Computer screens, though, have until pretty recently been unable to display serif faces very well. And that is why TechBiter Worldwide still uses a sans-serif face. The New York Times has elected to use a serif face, and it is highly readable on today's screens. The designer has also increased the line spacing slightly to enhance readability. The New York Times is, of course, a very large newspaper with many sections, and access to these sections is addressed by a drop-down list from the upper left corner. Readers can immediately navigate to any of the major sections. Each of the sections lists the articles that are appropriate to that part of the newspaper. You'll see an example of the New York Region section on the TechBiter Worldwide website. Primary stories are at the top, and three columns allow for additional organization on the page, or on the screen if you prefer. I decided to read the story about a diplomat from India who's been charged with abusing her domestic help. Instead of being broken up over several website pages, the entire account is now on a single page. It's a very long page, but this makes it easier to read. Just keep scrolling down. It's also easier to print. And when you're reading one story, other accounts from the same section of the paper are in a neat scrollable bar at the top. Nice job, New York Times. Remember when voice recognition software required speaking like this, period. That's no longer the case, and even small devices such as smartphones and tablets 
are able to listen and respond to what you say. Remarkable? Well, to an old guy like me, yes. To somebody who's never known a time when there wasn't a computer nearby, probably not so much. My little Nexus 7 tablet listens when I talk. Earlier versions of the tablet required only that the user say Google, but now the trigger is OK Google. Adding the OK probably eliminates some false activations. So what can I find out? Here are some examples. Go to techbiter.com. Send an email to president at whitehouse.gov. What time is it in Barcelona? What's the weather today in London? Tell me about cats. And lots more. I asked about the weather. Okay, Google, tell me about the weather. And the tablet opened by favorite weather application, Weather Underground. I found it was 8 degrees below zero, and a chart at the bottom of the page showed the predicted conditions and temperatures for the next few days. Or maybe I'm hungry for pizza. Okay, Google, find pizza. Here are the listings for pizza within 20 miles. Or if I suddenly decide I need another cat and I don't know where to find them because I'm in Hilliard instead of Worthington. Okay, Google. Find cats in Hilliard. Here are the listings for cats within 20 miles. Unfortunately, if I'm looking for a cat who has hidden somewhere in the house, this command is not at all useful. week, a participant in a discussion list I read was having an email problem. A couple of years ago, a university started rejecting messages from her domain. The tech people at the university tried to help, but they found that the overrides they put in didn't last. This week, a message that she sent to one of her clients at the university didn't go through, so she wondered, should I use another email address, such as Hotmail? This is something that mainly affects people who operate their own domains. But sometimes large providers such as AOL.com or Hotmail.com also become blacklisted. The information I'm about to share could easily be used by anybody who has more than one account with services that allow the use of standard email clients. In other words, something that's not webmail. I started by explaining that this happens occasionally with any shared host. Bluehost is good about tossing the offending party deleting the account under the provider's Terms of Service, TOS. But it can take a while for the email block to be removed. I suggested setting up an email client to use the ISP's SMTP server instead of Bluehost's. This kind of split operation is pretty easy to set up, and I keep both settings handy on my machines. So even if you don't have your own domain, this could be a handy trick to permit sending messages through an alternate service. For example, you could set up your ISP's server as one option and Gmail's as the other. If you decide to do this with Gmail, you'll find Mozilla's explanation useful even if you don't use Thunderbird. There's a link to that explanation on the TechBiter Worldwide website. So why might your domain's mail be blocked? The most common reason is the result of your domain being on a shared host, such as Bluehost or Dreamhost. If you have a domain name and it's not hosted on your own private server or a virtual private server, you are on a shared host. 
Also, if you're not paying at least $100 a month for hosting, you are on a shared host. A shared system may host 100 or more domain names, often a lot more. When somebody signs up for hosting, the hosting company assigns the domain name to a specific server. At Bluehost, my domains happen to live on box445.bluehost.com. TechBiter Worldwide has a static IP address, and if you wondered, it's 67.222.41.89. That doesn't affect any mail I send via Bluehost, though. All outbound mail from domains on Box 445 come from 74.220.220.182. What this means is if Sammy the Spammer sets up business on Bluehost and is assigned to Box 445, he'll pretty quickly run afoul of one of several internet vigilante groups that run email blacklists. These blacklists are used by many universities, corporations, and ISPs. Messages coming from blacklisted IP addresses are assumed to be spam. Bluehost will delete SammyTheSpammer.com's account under their terms of service. But that's not the end of the problem. Sammy will have been tossed, but the blacklist will still be in force for another 48 or maybe 72 hours. And your messages coming from that same IP address will still be refused by those who use the blacklist. The situation can occur with any shared host operation. So changing from DreamHost to Bluehost, or from Bluehost to GoDaddy, or from GoDaddy to Uncle Harry's Cheap Hosting, won't eliminate the problem. There is a solution, though, that's essentially permanent. The solution is to have a standby server that you can send mail through, and just about everybody who has a domain name has that backup server thanks to their internet service provider, Comcast or Roadrunner, Wide Open West, any of the big guys, or any of the small guys for that matter, are going to give you an email account. But before getting into that, it's important for you to know that there are two servers involved in email. The POP3 server, Post Office Protocol, that's the one that handles mail that has been sent to you. And the SMTP server, Simple Mail Transfer Protocol, that's the one that handles the messages you send. You'll find some images on the TechBiter Worldwide website. They are from Thunderbird. I used Thunderbird because it's one of the more popular email programs. Other programs have similar settings and usually call them by the same or at least very similar names. So what you'll want to find is the outbound or SMTP server setting. Two of the most important settings are the server name and the port. The default port for unencrypted SMTP is 25, and it's 587 for encrypted SMTP. Bluehost specifies port 26, though. But obviously, if you're using your hosting provider to send mail, you've already worked all of that out. So now you need to add that second server, the one operated by your ISP, or maybe the one operated by Gmail. So visit your ISP's help page and search for instructions to set up an email client. The instructions will probably list several popular applications. Any of these will have all the information you need, which is the name of the SMTP server. Ignore any authentication instructions. That'll come later, and it's going to differ from what the ISP says. So my internet service provider is Wide Open West. I visited their website and found that the outgoing mail server is smtp.mail.wowway.com. Take that name back to your email program. Because you're using one company's server to receive mail and another company's server to send mail, you can't use the same credentials for both. You'll need to set up explicit credentials, your username and password, to send mail. 
So find the location in your program where you can add a new SMTP server. This is usually labeled pretty clearly. You'll provide at least the server name and your username. That's the one the ISP assigned to you. Depending on the email program, you may be asked for a password at this point. Thunderbird asks for the password the first time the account is used to send mail, and then it remembers it. So you just want to have both your username and your password handy, along with the other information, the server name, and the port that you need to use. When you've completed the setup and tested to be sure that you can send messages using the server, you're prepared for those instances in which your messages are blocked because some spammer is operating on your server. To use the alternate server, just visit the Account Settings section of your mail application, change the outbound server for your account from the hosted domain's server to your ISP's server. Now, that seems like a lot, and if you're just listening to the podcast, it's probably pretty darn confusing. Be sure to check the TechBiter Worldwide website. You'll find an illustrated example there. And really, once you get it set up, switching from one to the other takes just a few seconds. So I think it's a pretty good insurance policy. In short circuits, it's unusual for me to miss something so obviously problematic with an application that I shouldn't have recommended it in the first place, but I did. Most applications have a certain number of surprising features, also known as bugs, but if the application is generally usable, we learn to live with those surprising features. Well, that's what I thought initially about WebRoot Secure Anywhere. I recognized that there were some problems with it, but it's a cloud-based protective service that seemed ideal because it accepted automatic input from systems where the application has been installed. Unfortunately, I found that it causes a lot of problems, and WebRoot's support team, although always prompt, polite, and concerned, was never able to solve them. By the time I decided the best solution would simply be to remove the application from my computers and request a refund, the period during which a refund would have been granted had passed. The first problem I encountered was with Secure Anywhere's privacy protection feature. It made programs that I depend on unusable by default. These included LastPass, the password manager, and a macro application called Macro Express. Eventually, I figured out what the problem was, and I found that I could exempt individual programs. Secure Anywhere receives frequent updates, though, and every time the program was updated, I had to fix the problem again. Eventually, WebRoot found a way to permanently exempt the programs, or so they said. I still had to fix the problem occasionally. WebRoot had installed a password manager in Firefox, too, and activated it by default, that was the primary point of conflict with LastPass. Although I disabled the add-on and uninstalled it, it returned whenever an update ran. Secure Anywhere also warned about numerous websites that were safe. I want to be protected from rogue sites, but there were far too many false alarms. Every time I reported a problem, WebRoot's first suggestion was to download their log grabber, run it, uninstall WebRoot, and then reinstall it. At some point, this begins to feel a lot like being told that for the spell to work, the chicken has to be waved clockwise around your head instead of counterclockwise. And once, their logging tool reported that Secure Anywhere wasn't even installed. Not only was it installed, but it was also running. This wasn't exactly a confidence builder. 
So, the most recent time that Webroot support asked me to uninstall Secure Anywhere and then reinstall it, I decided to leave it uninstalled for a few days and see if another problem would persist when Secure Anywhere wasn't running. Occasionally, and in various programs, some keystrokes simply disappeared. For example, I might type, some keystrokes disappear. And what would appear on the screen was, some keys appear. After removing Secure Anywhere, that behavior stopped. This is unfortunate because the idea behind Secure Anywhere is excellent. But sadly, the implementation seems not to be. If it was up to me, companies such as Comcast and Time Warner would have to treat all internet traffic the same. But a federal judge has given the companies what is constructively permission to do whatever they want with the data on their networks, unless the Federal Communications Commission acts. So, will it? FCC Chairman Tom Wheeler hasn't been exactly a powerhouse in the battle for consumers' rights. Wheeler, writing on the FCC website, says that the agency will vigorously exercise its authority to ensure broadband providers operate their networks in the public interest. But get this. Cautiously. Service providers want to be able to give preference to content provided by their own companies at the expense of all others. So the people who have Internet access via Comcast, for example might find that their attempts to watch Netflix streaming media is hampered by a slow connection, while video provided by Comcast properties would play at full speed. The same could be said for all the other large providers who also own media operations. Wheeler seems to be attempting to remain, well, neutral in the matter. Perhaps he's trying to find a middle way somewhere between what the providers want, in other words, being allowed to do whatever they want, and what advocacy groups want, which would be prohibiting network providers from treating data differently because of its source. He wrote that network operators are unlikely to do anything that will diminish the value of the Internet and that the FCC will not needlessly hinder the ability of the providers to do what they need to do. To some extent, network management already requires that some types of data be treated differently. Streaming video and audio, for example, generally get higher priority than email messages or file transfers. That makes sense because this allows the media to play without halting, and slight delays in email or file transfers simply go unnoticed. <laughs> Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide, the weekly podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. All music on TechBiter Worldwide is licensed under the Creative Commons, and information about performers is on the website, www.techbiter.com. I'm Bill Blinn, and if you'd like, you can also send me a message from the website. Thanks for listening. I look forward to talking with you again in a week.